uh, name that movie? And you know why I stopped it? <laughs> That's the, that is the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. I said to someone at this day, I was going to start with the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. And they thought I was going to start with scene two. Scene two is the D-Day beaches. Uh, the most realistic portrayal of that scene ever made on film. Do you mind if I tell you the plot? because I'm going to have to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. Who's the man collapsing at the grave? That's Private Ryan. He's weeping at the graveside of the man who gave his life that he might live. He's lived a long and fruitful life. He's surrounded by the fruit of that life. They're walking behind him, his wife and his children, and his grandchildren. I assume he'd live that life to the full without the burden of guilt or shame, which is the whole point of his salvation. That's the why they saved him, so that he could do that. But as the reality of that sacrifice dawns on him, as he gets to the grave of the man who led the expedition to save his life, it becomes too much for him to emotionally constrain. And what he weeps are tears of joy at his life, gratitude, appreciation for what he has, but mainly pain at the cost at which his life was bought. And that scene is reprised at the end of the film. We then see the events that lead us to um, uh, his salvation, if you like. And he turns to his wife and he says, was I a good man? Did I lead a good life? Did I do what I could to make this man's sacrifice a worthy one? Did I live well in the way that he died well? Was my life a life of gratitude? In the reading that we had, um, it's one of several stories, several accounts of a very similar emotional realization. You know, those who, those who follow Christ do so for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because the lifestyle that Christ modeled for us is attractive, it's appealing. It, we think, oh, I agree with that. I want to do that in my own life. The, you know, the reversal of values, the, the, the first will be last, um, uh, the poor will be rich, those who mourn will be comforted, and so on. It's an, it's an antidote to the spirit of the world, and, and that's why we follow Christ sometimes. Sometimes it's because Christ promises us Life in all its abundance, life in all its fullness. Uh, whether that's the presence of the Spirit, the possibility of healing and deliverance, and the experience of worshipping God in freedom, in spirit, and in truth. So our faith is experience, and it's refreshing. Sometimes it's that. Quite a lot of the time, it's because we see Christ and God as the great circumstance changer. We, we like 
um, God to do something for us, to deliver us from this or provide us with that. None of those three reasons are wrong in any way. And, and I could equally preach on all of them, and they'd, they'd be right. But I don't know if we can lose ourselves and find the extravagant love that Mary shows in this passage unless we can honestly explore the cost of it all and somehow take that on board. Now, we're on dangerous ground because there's a thin line between a heartfelt appreciation of what Jesus did and a burden of guilt about it. You understand what I mean? You can cross the line from one into the other quite easily and then lose the point. Because the whole point of Jesus' sacrifice was that you should not have to live like that. You know, that, that exposes our tendency to try and earn our salvation or justify or somehow pay back what has been done. But it is never wrong, I think, to reflect not on how much we deserved it, but on what we have been saved from and how. And to move from that into worship, into the sort of extravagant love that Mary shows Jesus in this incident just prior to his crucifixion. So a few reflections on that is um, all I bring, but I hope that you will find it helpful. The story itself is repeated in all of the Gospels, although it's not clear whether we're always talking about the same incident. It seems likely that Matthew, Mark, and John are, and Luke talks about a different incident with a different woman, probably, who is a, a prostitute, the, the, the sinful woman who has been forgiven much. But it's the same sort of outpouring of love towards Jesus. And the common denominator between the stories is cost. Which is a, a concept which has become alien to us. I'm not sure it's our fault, um, but I think there's something we can do about it. The idea of cost. We live in the internet age where most stuff appears free. The cost of it is disguised. You click and you download, you, you can do stuff mostly for free because somebody else is paying for it by way of an advert or a subscription or something, and it looks free. And part of the joy of life comes from the appreciation of cost, because out of cost comes value and response. There were several areas of cost here. One was the cost of the, the ointment or the fragrance. It was called nard. It doesn't sound very expensive, does it? But something you cook chips in or something. But it's, um, it's not. It was very, very, very expensive. It's um, um, a spice imported from North India. We're, we're, we're in Israel here. Um, that's a million miles away in the context of the time. It would have been trailed across... Um, sea and land by you know, caravans of camels or ships or whatever 
hugely expensive to either to harvest it and get it to where we are currently are now. Twelve ounces, it is reckoned, would cost a year's average wage, which, as Judas calculates it very quickly, and says at least 300 denarii. If you were to pour out something costing an average year's wage on me, I'd stop you. But if you did, we'd be looking at 22 to 25,000 quid. Do you love me enough to do that? Puts it in context, 300 denarii is an average wage. The average wage in this country is 20-odd grand. So you can imagine that just as an act of love, an act of worship. But it wasn't just a financially costly act. It was costly to her because it wasn't affirmed or appreciated by those watching. Neither was it appreciated when the prostitute did it in Luke 7, which is probably a different incident. She was exposed and ridiculed for her former life. Mary is criticized here for being extravagant and profligate and wasteful. So she pays a double cost. We also know that in the act of doing it, she pours it on on Jesus' other gospel, say it ran down his head and into his beard, and she anoints his feet, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. This was a public gathering. This was a public meal. Women never unfurled their hair in public. It was um, an act of uh, disgrace, an act of um, unseemly behavior, and it bracketed you with women of ill repute. So Mary sacrificed not just 300 denarii, whatever that means, but reputation and her standing amongst those with whom she lived. What was it about Mary's understanding of Jesus that made her do that? Just to backtrack a little bit, she is Lazarus' sister. And this meal is given as a love offering to Jesus, I, I guess to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead. In the case of the prostitute in Luke 7, she'd been forgiven. It it says that Jesus forgives her sins. So she is restored to society. She's restored to decency and has a new life. Both of them are granted a gift of new life. And something about that leads them both to worship in this way. Of course, this is all about salvation, isn't it? Not, we, we, when I say salvation, because we're evangelical, most of us, we mean eternal salvation. We mean what happens when you die. All right? Salvation is used through the Bible in all sorts of different ways. And that, that is a very New Testament way of, of using it. In fact, throughout the Bible, salvation means here and now. Being saved from this situation to a new life now as well as whatever happens to your eternal soul. When the, when the psalmists are writing about the Lord, my hope and my salvation, they're not talking about heaven. They're talking about deliverance from enemies and famine and disease. It's us that reads that meaning into what they wrote. So these two women and these two stories 
were rejoicing in their salvation, just as Private Ryan was at the graveside of his saviour, of the man who gave his life for him to live. What were they saved from? Well, first of all, they were saved from death. Martha has had the life of her brother restored to her. Her brother was probably the person who looked after her. We don't read of a husband at this point. So she's been delivered from the grief and loss of a loved one and had him restored to her. The prostitute is restored to a new life. She has a new future now. And Mary understands that Jesus has come to do more than teach and exhort people to try and do a little bit better. Do you ever feel that about the way we look at it sometimes? That here is somebody who just was extremely good at things and exhorts us to try a little bit harder and be a little bit better than what we are. Jesus came to inaugurate a new age where his followers would pray every day, let your kingdom come. Let creation be different to what it was yesterday. Change the world. Let your will be done now as it is in heaven. And I think Mary is starting to realize what that means. She understands that she sits in the presence of someone who's come to change reality. Not thank someone for raising her brother from death, although obviously that was the thing that caused her to reach this conclusion. Here is someone who has come to completely change the possibilities open to human beings, and he'd done it for her. We don't fully understand it, but Jesus saves us from death. It's a moot point for me whether that means annihilation or eternal suffering. We can talk about that in the pub if you like. I don't know. I've never met anyone who's been there and come back. But there's something inescapable that the sacrifice Jesus made and his explanation of it, that we are saved from death. The power of death today and the power of death for eternity. Whatever that means. And Mary understands that. She's in the presence of the one who gives life. Changed life and new life. But there's something else. She understands what she's saved by. And this is where we come to the cost. What is she saved by? Because this story stands on the, the kind of the, the crux between one situation and another. This is where Jesus moves from being free to move about and raise people from the dead and heal lepers and forgive people's sins to the point where he's on the road to Calvary. We read verses 7 to 10. Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Both Jesus and Lazarus were marked men. I don't know what happened to Lazarus. I do know what happened to Jesus. And Mary 
knows it. And this, this nard, this, this ointment, was an anointing for burial. It was a statement that says, your death is coming soon. And Mary knows it. And there's a movement here from one understanding of Jesus to another. In the Luke story, Jesus forgives her sins. And those watching say, who is this that forgives sin? Just as he did with the paralytic man. And the rhetorical answer is, well, only God can forgive sin. So here we see the historical Jesus, the man walking about, moving towards the Christ of God. Have you ever considered the difference? The three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are mostly about what we call the historical Jesus, what Jesus did, said, and taught. In John in particular, there is a movement from that to something else, which is the Christ. Not just the man who showed us how to live, but who did something unique in history and something which will never be done again. Mary makes this extravagant gesture of love because, not just because Jesus had some great ideas about society, but she knew she was in the presence of God, her Saviour. There is something she knows in that room that no one else has yet really got. She knows this more than anyone else because her circumstances have changed. And although she knows the poor will always be there, the world has just changed. Jesus is making that journey from man to Christ. So we're saved from death, we're saved by death. Saved to what? We're saved to life. And we have the opportunity to make the same journey that Jesus did from this single life to his risen and transformed state. And we become part of the deal, become part of that transformation of the universe. This is why he said, follow me, because he wants us to be part of what he's doing. And that is what we are saved to, that's the point. So when you look behind Private Ryan and you saw his wife and his children and his grandchildren... That was the fruit of his life. And as I say, if we could fast forward to the end of the film, his only question as he stands up from the grave is, did I do right? Did I lead a good life? The Jesus that you and I participate in is the risen Jesus who has become the Christ an inclusive statement about who he is in God, but about all of us as well, because we are part of him. We are in his body. And this extravagant love response is, I think, driven by understanding what that means. Jesus is not just the man of the story. He's the man of cosmic creation. So what are we saved to? We're saved to life. It says the house was full of the fragrance of the ointment. 
what Mary did filled the whole house. Everyone knew that she'd done it. In being saved to life, we are saved to, I'm going to suggest two or three things here. Firstly, to a life that is worship, to a life that is fragrant, to a life the smell of which, if you like, fills the house. And then that that means when we come to worship together, we engage with it, because that is what we've been saved to do. Mary didn't say, as I sometimes say, and I hear others sometimes say, you know what, I didn't get much out of the worship today. In fact, I'm 300 denarii down. She's released from that attitude that says, what about me? What do I get out of it? Into a place that says, I just want to be intimate with God. And let him know how I feel. And I think understanding who Christ is, what it cost, and why we are here, is what releases you into doing that sincerely. We can do it in all sorts of other ways, like just simply enjoying the music or emulating what people around us are doing. And of course, that's human. That's part of us. We always lapse into that weakness every now and again. But until we move from Jesus to Christ, we don't really know why we're worshipping at all. Second is this. We really do always have the poor with us. They really are there, even in Ealing. And the irony of this story is that once we've got to that place of intimacy with Christ, that's when we start meeting the needs of the poor. There are a hundred opportunities every day to anoint Jesus with the love of what we do for other people. The irony is now this is where we do sell the ointment and go on the Beeson Project and support choices. What makes that service Christian is not being nice to people, it's pointing people to Christ. There are a lot of people out there who do good things for poor people. What makes it Christian is when we point them to God. And the third thing is outward focus in the church. Watch out for the ideas of making us a a place that reaches out to people, not because they are fun, not just because they are fun, and not just because they make us feel good, but because the aroma of it fills the house. You know, what we're going to do next Saturday is not done just because it's practical and it needs to be done but because it anoints the head and feet of Christ when we do it. It's an outflow of love, and the aroma of what we do probably will fill the house. It will be overcome with emulsion, won't it, I imagine. Did you see what I did there? I'd like to ask, um, John, if you want to come back and bring the worship team back, I want to conclude and leave you just with that simple picture of cost and awareness of cost. Um, We are saved from death by death 
to life. And in understanding that, we know a different kind of Jesus to maybe the one we talk about most of the time. There's knowing about the cross, isn't there? And then there's knowing the reality of the cross. And what that cross has done is made the future an open possibility for everyone on earth. Everyone who's alive today has an open possibility because of the cross. Saved from sin, saved from death, and with the, with the opportunity to worship God. And everyone can truly say that today is the first day of the rest of my life because of what Jesus did. So I'd like us just to stand and worship and John's going to lead us. Um, we, can, we will do some ministry later. If you want to stand with me, um, if you feel...